Galway Cannell has been lauded as one of the true master poets of his generation by the New York Times. Among his many acclaimed volumes of poetry are Strong is Your Hold, which was selected as a New York Times notable book, A New Selected Poems, which was a National Book Award finalist, and Selected Poems, which was awarded both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. He has also published translations of work by Yves Bonnefoy, Yvan Gaul, François Villon, and Rainer Maria Rilke. Canel has previously been named a MacArthur Fellow and the Vermont Poet Laureate. For many years, he was the Eric Maria Remarque Professor of Creative Writing at New York University and was recently a Chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. Welcome to the Bibliophile. In your youth, quote, he was drawn both to the musicality and hermetic wisdom of poets like Edgar Allan Poe and Emily Dickinson. I wonder if you could describe why you were drawn to that. I don't think I was drawn to them in the same way. I was drawn to um, Edgar Allan Poe much earlier than to uh, Emily Dickinson. I was drawn to Poe because he transformed <clears throat> for me the very ugly accent of my town in Rhode Island where I grew up. He transformed it into beautiful music. And uh, I spoke in this this grunting English all day and then in bed at night before I slept I read uh, it was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea there lived a maiden you may know etc etc and uh, it was just a uh, magic he was using a language that transformed the world that he described that I knew too but he transformed it through this glorious language mm -hmm. into a different area of consciousness. What does that mean? It means that if I said about Vermont, yeah, it's a, if I spoke in a peculiar accent and a limited vocabulary about my own city, let's say, we have the bubble, for example. That's a local colloquial accent or term? Hmm. It means, uh, where is the water faucet or something? Okay. Where, where the babla? I would have thought it might have meant, where's the champagne? But <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you know, it was a place where immigrants had, had been coming for a long time, and many of us were children of first-generation Americans. Our parents had come from very different uh, countries, and their accents were all different, so the children's accents were all different. None of them came out too well, sounding too well. So the sound of speech was kind of rough and rough, simple, plain, mm, and a little ugly. Yeah. Then to read in contrast to that, Edgar Allan Poe singing. I mean, he was speaking, but he was singing. Mm -hmm. He turned the speech into song, and that transformed reality. He's using words like we all use, but in, in ways that, what, resonate with your soul? He's using them for their beauteous words, 
as well as for their designation of things, for their relationship to each other that made a kind of music. Right. How about Emily Dickinson? Dickinson I came to much, much later. Of course, I read Dickinson, but I came to love Dickinson. She has a wonderful language, but by that time I was living in a in a world where I had heard wonderful languages. It was her willingness and ability to probe into the dark places in experience where it looks like we are headed for death. Mm. She is a completely fearless to go into the sources and the places in us where horror dwells. She certainly experienced pain, Lots I, I can't say more deeply than, uh, very deeply, I can't say more deeply than Poe or anybody else, but Poe kind of sang over it and made it lovely. Mm. So in her starkness it was but her she, honesty. But she, in her honesty and her determination to get it exactly right, probed terribly far into the psyche in a way that really nobody else had done. If you look at Wordsworth, he is unaware of that kind of poetry. You speak of horror. I think perhaps one of the most horrifying places for a human to be is... Um, Inside oneself. Inside oneself, believing that one is not going to be loved, is not lovable, won't find love. Well, Emily Dickinson felt all those things, I'm sure. You've also, moving on, been somewhat scornful of the capacity of courses to teach students how to write poetry. I hope I haven't been scornful, because I have taught people how to write poetry, but I don't think of it that way. I don't think you can teach somebody how to write poetry. You can help them if they have some gift for it and want to pursue it. You can help them along their way. How do you help them along the way? Well, usages and things. Uh, you know, somebody might think you begin a poem by saying, 12 years ago, I uh, met somebody, and that's the first line of the poem. That might be the first line of a short story, but as yet, it's not the first line of a poem, because the language has to be a little a higher level, deeper level, compressed and electric and surprising. So, so 12 years ago, I lost my heart. What's that exa an example of? A bit more of an electric line? No. 12 years ago, my heart was shattered by a no. devil. See, see, that's it. See, they might think that is poetry, but it's not. It's just exposition. So what you're saying has to imitate in its sound what you're talking about. So 
anyway, they they have to understand that there's a degree of compression, of uh, intensity, and of mimicking of what they're talking about in the sound of what they're saying before you get caught in poetry. I'm going to ask you for an example now. I will arise and go now, and go to Innisfree, and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, and a hive for the honey bee, and live alone in the bee loud glade. So, so all that weaves a spell, mm. and it's not just saying uh, it's time for me to set out. The bee loud glade, I think, is one of the greatest lines in poetry. All right, yeah. Live alone in the bee loud glade. The vowels form a, a little melody of their own, for example. They do. So there's the melody, there's the content, and then there's the, the technical virtuosity. Well, it's not just the melody. That's just an example. When you're reading a poem, you're actually trying to read it in such a way that it will capture what it's talking about in, in the way it's being read. It's a difficult thing to define, isn't it? Yeah. You can recognize that when reading a poem. You recognize it by, what, a sense of feeling, a sense of pleasure in the harmony? By the way, it kind of grabs hold of you, lifts you up from exposition to poetry. It's a very subjective thing, isn't it? You could say that. Mm -hmm. Which leads to a, a, another question, of course, about the subjective feeling that you get from a poem, and therefore you defend it as a great poem, and then the objective aesthetic value that experts may, quote-unquote, lavish on the work itself. Hmm. When does a great poem become a great poem? When enough experts and individuals agree that it's significant? By, what, by great, what we probably mean is a poem that will last and that will continue to thrill people. And I don't think anybody can predict which poem being written today will a hundred years from now, be right. a great poem. So time is the arbiter? Mm -hmm. And uh, since we're all going to be dead, we never, <laughs> we never have an answer to the question of, uh, is this a great poem? Well, we just have to have a look at the poems that have yeah, stayed with us. Look at the like poems Yates. we have now yeah. that were written 300 years ago. And then, I suppose, try to come up with parallels and comparisons, justifications, if that's what we're interested in doing, evaluating. Yeah, but you can't evaluate the future. You can't evaluate the present by claiming you're going to be great in the future. Yeah. Well, who would have been able to predict 9-11 and, and the impact that W.H. Auden's September 1939 would have, would have had? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because of that. That's a kind of great poem, but again, that's fairly re recently written, may century from now disappear. You were involved in reading and writing 
poetry concerning the Vietnam War and human rights movement, civil rights movement, which brings up Shelley's remark about unacknowledged legislators. Do you think that's the role of uh, a poet? No, it isn't really. Not to make laws. To suggest how things might be? To try to figure out how to make uh, human life really, really good for those who are living and at the same time for those who will follow us to see what we're doing wrong and to see what we're doing right and that's a big part of it yeah. not its whole message but that certainly is involved yeah dealing with social issues um, but but also expressing your relationship to the world personally yeah mm -hmm. my relationship the people and the creatures and the plants and rocks. Speaking of rocks, interesting quotes that I came across where you spoke of uh, if you're successful in writing poetry, you become a, the blade of grass or the stone, I think. Could you elaborate on that? Hmm, I don't think so. It's uh, a kind of uh, impression, kind of moment that really can't be elaborated on because it's irrational. Hmm. It's a feeling of, what, oneness with the earth and without sounding too airy-fairy. Is there a way of nailing that down? Well, I, I try to nail it down in specifics, but, but that's the general idea. You, spent, you, you mentioned creatures, and uh, your work reveals a, an affection for creatures both great and small. I've got a quote here. When creatures don't have an extraordinary beauty, it's because the person in contact with them is not seeing it. I feel more and more in love with creatures as I get older. Hmm. That's good. Why do you feel more and more in love with them? I wrote that when I was much younger than I am now, so I'm not sure what, why I began to feel much more in love with creatures, but I suppose I began to get to know them a, a little better, came in contact with them, noticed them, felt some kind of kinship with them, which of course there is, but we don't often feel it. Have you seen that movie called Food, Inc.? Uh, it's been on my list for quite a while. I haven't oh, seen yeah. it yet. It's quite eye-opening, isn't it? It really puts it all out there about how we treat animals as things with no feelings. The production machines. Yeah, and subject them to horrible, horrible experiences yeah. and then eat them. There's a, a Nobel Prize winning novelist, J.M. Kotsia, uh -huh. from South Africa, who's concerned about this topic. He's written a book called The Lives of Animals. Mm. He's a vegan. Yeah. Do you think that's going to change? Do you think uh, 
As well, time goes by, we'll learn more and more about how intelligent animals are. Not just their intelligence, but the right to live on Earth with us. It might. I've been talking with friends about Vermont, how some places in Vermont try to be self-sustaining, and they don't go outside of the state. They go with each other, yeah. and they take care of their animals and their plants and everything. Uh, have a farming life much different from, from the uh, big companies that produce all our, almost all our food. According to this movie, just about five or six companies produce for all of us, and they feed us corn. And the nutritional value is just crap. Right. Yeah. I'm uh, speaking to uh, Galway Canal, respected and award-winning American poet. You say you move away from a Christian sensibility in your poems? Early on, they seem to be. Well, I was raised as a Christian. No, nobody asked me if I wanted to be raised as a Christian, but I was. And uh, when I was about 17 or 18 years old, I thought and thought and thought about this. I've taken classes and courses in, in religion at college beforehand. The subject is very interesting. I suddenly became uninterested in religion because I didn't believe it anymore. Man-made structure, known unknowns. Yeah, wishful thinking. I'll, I'll follow that up with your poetry being a testament to the independent realization that can be induced by meticulous excavation of the physical universe. Hmm. Sounds pretty good. <laughs> Moving away from religious orthodoxy into a poetry which, quote, burrows fiercely into the self. Mm. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it that way, but I don't think it's inaccurate. I don't think burrowing into myself is a complete characterization of what I do. I burrow also into the things that are without me into trees, for example, into other creatures, try to feel with them, and, uh, of course, other people. So burrowing suggests a kind of retreat into the dark, the darkness within. You, uh, at one point, suggested that there is some sadness in all poetry, and sadness may be the prevailing note. You refer to Keats's Two Autumn. Sadness is what makes poetry thrilling, and mortality makes everything worth more to us. Hmm. I may be exaggerating a little bit there, but there's a certain, certain truth in all that. Keats to Autumn is, you know, a description of the autumn, but Keats was, I'm not sure how aware he was uh, of his disease, but his brother had just died of tuberculosis and he feared for himself. Yeah. And I think that lauding of the season and the seasonal nature of the earth just awakened some sense in him of that we all die out of these waves of seasons. We all die out of them at one time or another. So there's a kind of a sadness. If you find yourself thinking of those things, then it might show more and if you actually 
I'm not thinking of those things. It might only be unconsciously that you somehow acknowledge that this cycle of birth, growing up and dying, is part of what you're appraising. He died at something like 21 or 25. Or yeah. Well, speaking of immortality, I wonder, is there a poem, one poem or two, that I might be able to get you to read that you would like to be remembered by? Well, I couldn't read the one I'd like to be remembered by because if I'm remembered, I think I would like to be remembered by the poems that the people remember me. <laughs> <laughs> it's their choice, right? Yeah. You, you don't have a choice then? No, I mean, that's not a issue with me. It's nothing I I ha have anything to do, do with. No. You, is there one you're particularly fond of? Or that captures the essence of what you want to say to people? I'm fond of a lot of them. They're not saying the same thing. They're addressing certain things, and they're different. At certain times of your life, that well, perhaps there's something right now in your life. There's a short poem I might ask you to read. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I can't think of anyone that, that fulfills any of your requirements for this poem. Okay. But I could read you a poem. That would be great. I have to go and get it. Sure. These are uh, new poems. Uh, I all the poems I'm writing now are quite long. I picked two of the shorter ones. Okay. I can't give you these because they're not finished. So, <coughs> so, so these are not even they're not fresh off the press. They're fresh out of your mind. Yeah, and they're not really finished either. Okay. Even there. Actually, I was interested to note, and you mention it in the avenue bearing the initial of Christ into the New World, that what happened is that in reading your poems, you found that certain lines you felt should be yeah. left out, and uh, so you're able to uh, edit them and come up with the selection uh, that way. Yeah, it makes me think I uh, published uh, poems too soon yeah. when I find such thing. But at the moment, at the, at the time, it seemed like it was all finished. Anyway, here's one. It's about just sitting in a cafe in New York one morning, observing and listening. <coughs> it's called In the Cafe on Sunday Morning. It is quiet on Sunday morning. Sparrow alights on my table, becomes irritable when I won't let it have my muffin. Old woman and old man read aloud to each other items of interest in the New York Times. I hear mention of dialectical materialism in identical Brooklyn accents. How come? One voice snuggles so well into another. Hard heels batter the pavement. Sneakers sneak by, silent movie-wise. Young woman, 
I love this day, friend. It's perfect. Sounds behind me gradually remember me into a memory. Scrape, sweep, scrape, sweep, scrape of a blind man's cane groping the pavement out ahead of him, sweeping, scraping, transmitting earmap of topography ahead. Recognize from a long time of living here the sweep and scrape, as if inwardly composing a poem, swooshing shapes of rhythmic words across concrete. That's where he's going. Get up and run, catch up at the McDougal curbstone. Can I help you cross? Takes my hand. You've helped me before. Yes, but not for a couple of years, but a memory. I remember voices better than no matter what else. My brain is a big library, mostly of voices, voices on my world. Back in the cafe, Sparrow has wrecked my muffin. What stick-to-itness, man at the next table says. I kept on shooing it from all tables together. Highly satisfactory blatter. Low voices, love voices, dialectical materialism voices, subdued remarks. I give you my soul sounds. Hey, Sparrow, get off my goddamn muffin. Whines city louder now, around us voices too soft or too intimate, and words too understood already, but too unfully formed for our talk to be made hearable over the rippling of communal poetry. Thank you. You're welcome. It's funny that sweet and scrape Reminds me of there's a scene in Stevenson's Treasure Island oh, early yeah. on. Yes, I know. <laughs> I once had in the poem a reference to that. Did you? Yeah. Isn't that funny? Galway Cannell has been lauded as one of the true master poets of his generation by the New York Times. Among his many acclaimed volumes of poetry are Strong as Your Hold which was selected as a New York Times notable book, a new selected poems, which was a National Book Award finalist, and selected poems, which was awarded both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. Cannell has previously been named a MacArthur Fellow and the Vermont Poet Laureate. He lives in Sheffield, Vermont. Thanks again. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>